We're back in the book of 1 Samuel this morning in chapter 16, which is right in the center of the book, and that's fitting because we're right about halfway through our series. Chapter 15, as you might recall, ended on a pretty sour note, and I'm thankful that the scriptures never leave on a sour note. Even when we're challenged and confronted and convicted, uh, there's also a word of forgiveness and hope and redemption, and, um, and I appreciate that, and I need to hear that when I come to a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 15, and, and we end on that last note there that Samuel and Saul have parted ways for good, that the word of the Lord through Samuel was no longer present in Saul's life, and, and, and Samuel was grieving over this fact, and the Lord, we're told, even regrets that, that Saul was ever made king. The great experiment had failed. What had started out as a promising new day in the life of God's people with the start of a monarchy had turned almost instantly into an unmitigated disaster. And that just goes to show the futility of man's designs, right? We, we as men and women, were created in the image of God, and as a result of that, we have, we have great potential to do many wonderful things. But whenever people seek to do things their own way, whenever we seek to take matters into our own hands and make our plans and our purposes and, and our values central, well, we always invite ruin and destruction into our lives and into the lives of those around us. And, it, and the scriptures are full of story after story after story of people who did just that, starting all the way back in the garden. Every time people put their hands on something apart from God and in opposition to God, things go wrong. But chapter 16, which is where we're going to be this morning, is a turning point. So if you would, join me there and there on page 237, if you grab the guest Bible, we'll be looking at the first 13 verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimei. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied. He's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. 
Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now the beginning of this chapter continues where the end of the last chapter left off. The grief that we feel at the parting of Samuel and Saul carries over into the the pages and the the verses that follow. And while the reader, we come to the story and we're reading through, while we may have moved on at the end of chapter 15, Samuel has not. He's still grieving. And not just over the failure of, of one particular person, but he's grieving the plight of all of God's people as a whole. A people who are no less wicked now than they were before. Remember, this is coming out of the season of the judges, the time of the judges when everyone, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and the people are, are wicked through and through and, and God has been raising people up to, to bring them back to himself. And, and just as we feel like we're turning a corner and we're getting out of that period in the, in the, of, the, of the nation's life, it turns out things are just as bad as they were when it started. War is on the doorstep. And their efforts to secure salvation for themselves has failed. And the only judge and prophet who remains is old. And his sons are corrupt. Who will step forward and lead the people of God? Maybe now is the time where Yahweh will abandon his people finally and for good. And it is into this grief and into this despair in this moment of hopelessness that the word of the Lord comes to Samuel in in chapter 16, verse 1. And he says, You have mourned long enough for Saul. Yes, I have rejected him as king. Yes, the people have rejected me. But guess what, Samuel? I have not given up on you. And I just want to say right there, as someone who who wants to please the Lord and live a life that is pleasing to God and a life that that is meaningful and fruitful, and a life that matters, I am very grateful to hear that about God this morning. That he doesn't give up on us. That he doesn't, you know, raise us up to do something, and then we, when we don't do it the right way, he just discards us and moves on to the next. And when we as whole peoples, maybe a whole church, or a whole community, or perhaps even a whole nation, when we've turned from him and gone our own way, he's still at work. He's still present. He's still seeking to bring about the redemption of of people. This isn't the first time we've seen this behavior from Yahweh in Samuel's life, is it? You may may recall the the second Sunday of the series, a number of weeks ago, we were remarking how amazing it was that the word of the Lord came at all to a, a tabernacle such as the one that Samuel occupied as a small child, the one that he lived in, where he was raised. It's amazing that the word of God would come to a tabernacle so corrupt to a people so entrenched in their stubborn refusal to receive the word of the Lord. But there it is, back in chapter 3, God's voice calling out to a boy who's utterly oblivious to the, the personality behind it. And yet the voice is neither harsh nor irritable. It's tender. It's patient. Chapter 16 confirms to us now as we move along in the story that the way Yahweh deals with individuals like dull little Samuel back in chapter 3 
it's the same way that he deals with entire peoples. And that tells me that his character is consistent. Who he is is unchanging. He doesn't manifest one way to one person and then something contrary to that to someone else. He is who he is, and he can be counted on. He's not unstable. He's not prone to fits or to flying off the handle or losing self-control. He's not prone to be, being consumed by his tempers and his emotions. No, God is nothing like you and I. And that's a word that I need to hear, that the desire of this God in your life and in my life and in the lives of our neighbors and in the lives of those out in the marketplace and those in the prisons and in the lives of our friends and even those in the lives of those we perceive to be our enemies, that it is the same desire expressed back in chapter 3 for him to call us by name, for him to, as it says in that chapter, come and to stand, for him to draw close and to be near. I don't think God is irritated with Samuel at all in verse 1. And I don't know if you read it that way or not. When I come to 16.1, I, I tend to, to feel like it's like me when I tell my kids, okay, or I've told them when they were little, you've cried enough about that. It's, it's, time, it's time to move on. I recognize that you're a child. I recognize that you don't have the same maturity as, as a grown person. And sometimes kids just cry about things. I'm not condoning temper tantrums. We, sh- we as parents should never tolerate temper tantrums. We have never tolerated one in all of our years of parenting. We will not stand for temper tantrums. They're kids, though. They're going to cry. And sometimes it's just time to stop the crying. But I don't hear that in the voice of God. I think there's actually something profoundly godly about Samuel's sorrow. He's not grieving something about himself something that he has lost personally. He's not even grieving Saul's loss. He is grieving the plight of a people. And there's something instructive in that about how you and I should should perceive our own sort of priestly role in the world that God has placed us in. That at some level, the people of God should grieve the, the situation of the brokenness and the lostness and the darkness of the world we're in. We should be broken by. We should never be just dismissive or, you know what, that's someone else's problem. It's someone else's problem around the world. It's someone else's problem in another state. It's someone else's problem around the block. It's not my, I've got my own problems. Leave me alone with your stuff. No, we are called to bear the world, to bear each other's stuff, to take it. Is there a more Christ-like picture of the church than that? To take on the burdens and to take on the concerns and to take on the sufferings of others, no matter how great or small. Samuel's sorrow is godly. And God's point to him in verse 1 is not, Samuel, it's time to suck it up and move on. That's not God's heart. His point is, Samuel, it's time for your grief to turn to hope. It's time to saturate your grief. For it to be permeated by the hope of God. It's not hope in Israel's ability to make things right. It is hope in God's ability to do what only God can do. He is about to do something new. He himself 
will make a way. And that begins, by the way, and keep this in mind as we go through the the rest of the message here, that begins back in verse 5 with the sending of a messenger to Bethlehem. A messenger who comes in peace to make a sacrifice. It's interesting that God's, God's plan, God's purpose, at the turning point in the life of his people, it's to send a prophet to the middle of nowhere Israel, the last place in the world you would expect him to go. He sends a prophet to come in peace to make a sacrifice. Now, I never took, in all my years of uh, college and seminary, I never took any courses in biblical Hebrew. So I would never presume to stand up here and tell you why. In fact, even all the years I had of Greek, I I tried to never stand here and pretend like I know Greek all that well. Um, I've told you this before, and it's still true. My my second-year Greek text, not my first year, my second-year Greek text was titled, It's Still Greek to Me. And I promise you, it's still Greek to me. But Hebrew is really Greek to me, okay? So I don't presume to, to have a, a super deep grasp of, of Hebrew or how, what those words mean and how it's constructed. But in my time of preparation this week, I came to learn about a key root word that shows up in this chapter nine times. Nine times. It's that word, ra'ah. And you're supposed to roll the, the, the R with your tongue, but I don't want to embarrass myself and spit all over my notes by trying to do that this morning. It's okay. I'll let you roll your tongues when you try to pronounce that word. That word shows up nine times, but here's the catch. It doesn't always, it's not always evident in the English translations every time that word or that root is in a word in in our English translations, especially the NLT, the one that I read to you from. And so if you're just reading through in the English, you miss the repetition. You miss the emphasis of that word. And it appears in a variety of different ways. It shows up as a, as a verb uh, there in like verse 1. Um, that means something like to select or to provide. It also shows up in verses 6 and 7 to mean to see or to look upon. It's the same root word. has the same. Th- these meanings are all associated and they all come together in, a, in an important way, which we'll make note of here in a second. It also shows up like a noun, like in verse 7, meaning appearance. So as a verb, it's to look upon. As a noun, it's appearance. Or verse 12, meaning countenance. And none of your English Bibles, unless you're carrying a a King James this morning, will reflect that uh, that root word in verse 12. It's really hard to see in the English, but the King James did its best to to present it. What's the point, though? Why am I telling you this? What, what, What is the meaning behind this word repeated so many times in so few verses? And and what's, what's the... What's the Lord trying to communicate to the reader through that? Well, it is this, that God sees, that God himself looks upon, that God selects and God provides his chosen one. The emphasis is on God. He selects his anointed. The people tried to select one for themselves, didn't they? They didn't follow what what the law prescribed for them for when that time would come. They they chose one that they thought would be the right kind of king. They chose the one who had all the connections, who had had the appearance. He had everything you would want that we as 
earthly, secular, worldly people desire in our leaders. They picked the perfect guy, and he was the wrong one. But when God operates, he is the one who looks upon. He will step in and select. He has chosen someone. And it's not who anyone else would have picked. And that's because God's thoughts and God's ways are not our thoughts or our ways, are they? You know, Samuel showed up there in Bethlehem, and he took one look at Jesse's oldest son, and he thought, this has to be the guy. I think it's, it's, it's kind of funny, it's also kind of sad, that even the prophet is, is thinking about these things in this way. And that's not to throw Samuel under the bus. Obviously, Samuel's a tremendous key figure in the, the salvation history of the world. And yet, anytime, no matter who we are, no matter what role we have in the church or what leadership position or what experience we have or however much God has called us and, and equipped us for whatever he's called us to, anytime we view things from our perspective, we will get it wrong. And Samuel shows up, he took one, one look at Jesse's oldest son and he thinks, this is the guy. No, who could replace Saul? I mean, the most handsome, the most connected, the most capable man in Israel. Surely it's this guy. Look at verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Are, are there any, uh, I know there are, so raise your hand boldly and confidently. Are there any college football fans in here? Raise your hand. Oh, there's got to be more than that. I said boldly and confidently raise your hand. It's okay. You can, I am raising my hand proudly. You know, for 10 years you've had to listen to it in this church. And if I'm here for another 10 or another 30 or another 100, you're going to keep hearing. Thank you, Linda. I see your hand over there. That was bold and confident. Thank you for that. There is a common expression among those who follow college football. And, you know, if you, you listen to the podcast and read the articles or, or care at all about the, not just the games, but like the, the discussion about the games and the players, there's this common expression that I hear from commentators when talking about certain recruits or certain star players who possess, you know, the really special elite athletic talents and traits. You know, those ones that have, yeah, they're, they're all athletic. They're all, you know, great athletes, but there's some that just have, they possess this extra special combination of size and speed and strength. And the expression about those types I, that I often hear is this, that guy's a dude. That guy's a dude. Now, over the last year or so that I've been working with directly with the teens, um, I've come to realize just how often I use the word dude. Now, you know, there are some words that come and go, and then there's some words that stand the test of time, and I'm pretty sure the word dude is going to stand the test of time. It's just a great word. What's up, dude? And when I say dude, I'm not talking in the college football sense. I'm just, it's more the, the generic sense, right? If you looked up the definition, what is the definition of a dude? It's a guy. Literally, that's the definition, a guy. So it's, it's, it's a really versatile word. You can use it in a lot of different contexts. And I very much do so. But not in the sense that I'm talking about. Because in college football, you have, yeah, there are dudes. But among the dudes, there are dudes. I suspect 
that Eliab, like Saul, was a dude. He was a specimen. To Samuel, he was the one that surely the Lord sent him to anoint as king. But God is not captivated or mesmerized by the things that we are. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or by his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks upon the heart. We live in a world with value systems that emphasize the superficial. But God looks beneath the surface, doesn't he? We want the good-looking ones. We want the funny ones. We want the tall and handsome. We want the ones with the resources. We want the ones with the goods on our team. But God looks upon the heart when selecting who is on his team. His thoughts, his ways are not our thoughts and ways. And he has a plan in mind that is so much bigger than what Samuel ever could have imagined. He had no idea, truly, what the Lord had in store. And God's invitation to Samuel, and I believe it's the same invitation to you and to me as the reader today, is to never place the fate of a person's life or a nation's life or even the destiny of the world in any other hands but his. His hands. His purposes. His designs. His ways. I need to be reminded of that today. I really do. And I know you do too. In a world that is increasingly spiraling out of control. War in Ukraine with, I saw just this week headlines throwing the word nuclear around. War in Israel of the likes we haven't seen in my entire lifetime. Everywhere you look, whether at home or abroad, there is chaos, there is turmoil. It's as if the fabric of of human civilization is coming unraveled before our very eyes. We need a reminder that the fate of your life and my life, in the life of our church, in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world, does not rest in our hands but His. That is the conviction that we must always operate and live from as followers of Christ. And you know my prayer is that in this coming election season, which we're already in, in the throes of election season, but it's only going to intensify over the coming year. We're gonna, it's, it's perhaps going to be an election season like nothing any of us have ever seen in our lives. And my hope and prayer is that during this season, the Lord would use it for us to be a great opportunity for the church to evaluate where its hope for the future truly lies. Yes, you and I need to be informed citizens. We need to be active. We need to make our voice heard. We need to be present. I get all that. We are to be salt and light at every sphere of the world in which we live. Absolutely. But beware the lie 
The lie that says, if only my guy gets in, then everything will be better. Or, if my guy doesn't get in, then all is lost. I promise you, if you haven't felt that yet, you will at some point in the next year. You will feel the, the despair of the thought of someone other than my guy getting in. And you'll think everything is lost. The world's going to come to an end. I refuse to live that way. I think the people of God are called to live above that. It is true, on November 5th next year, I might find myself grieving like Samuel. And you might too. It's entirely possible that we would find ourselves in what feels like a hopeless dead end. Where all is lost, all is darkness, all is vanity, nothing good can come next. And you may grieve, but church, grieve not as those without hope. And that's the lesson for Samuel. Yes, things seem dark. Yes, things seem bad. Yes, all seems lost. But God has not given up on his people or on his world. And he holds the future firmly. Not like, he's not bouncing it around like a game of hot potato. You know, we're like, when, when we have movie night in the living room and eat dinner on TV trays, and I'm worried that the slightest bump is going to spill a whole glass of milk on our carpet. That's not God. He's not, you know, carefully navigating through all the scary things in life and worried he's going to spill. God is in control. Our hope is in him. Beware of any false Messiah in your life. Any line of salvation that promises you to deliver what only God can deliver. Where does your heart look to for hope? There is only one Messiah. There's only one. Not just today, but for all time. Who is God's man. There's only one who is God's anointed. There's only one who occupies the central position in all of God's plans and purposes, not just for the world, but for your own life, there is only one. And it's not who anyone else would have imagined or chosen. In fact, we're told in, in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that he came. He came to the very world he created, the very world that he sustains moment by moment by his, by his will and his word. And the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Friends, the one that we rejected, God has chosen. And he is the truer, better son of David. The greater prophet, who also came to Bethlehem in peace to make a sacrifice to the Lord. He is the judge. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. He is the warrior that we need, that the world needs. Fierce and powerful, yet humble and lowly at heart. Oh, I love that about Jesus. I love that he's mighty and majestic, and yet tender and patient and long-suffering 
He came and he stood. God himself drawn near to call us by name. And he died, but then he rose again. And his resurrection from the dead, that was the turning point that human history needed most. Friends, Jesus Christ is the Lord's anointed. His cross is not only the clearest statement that there is, that there is wrath. Absolutely, the cross declares the wrath of God upon all unrighteousness, upon all wickedness. It declares his determination to eradicate it from his creation. But the cross is also the clearest statement of his mercy and his love and his absolute determination to save. He is not the hope of this nation. He's the hope of every nation. Grieve the brokenness. Grieve the lostness of our world, but do not despair. Stand up for what is true, but do it in love. God is in control of his world, and he has supplied everything we need to be his people in it. If only you and I would choose to trust in him and the one that he has selected, the one he has chosen, the one that he looked upon and provided for us. Psalm 146, don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful, joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The Lord, he will reign forever. Amen? Amen. Pastor Jeff comes up, I'll close this in prayer and sing a song of response and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for this morning and this chance to gather around the truth of your word that is uncompromising, that is desperately needed, not just out there, Lord, it is needed in here. We need to hear from you and we thank you that your voice is at once both firm and tender. That it, it confronts the wickedness and the evil that lies at the, the heart of people while also affirming the value and the, the delight that people are to you. And it is not your will to eradicate evil people. It is your desire to eradicate evil from people. May we, be a, may we be a church that champions that. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save all the world, that his grace is sufficient for every person, even those that we consider our enemies, those who do the worst of the worst, who seem to be nothing but soldiers in Satan's army itself. Lord, our 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 battle is not with them. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the principalities and the evil spirits and of this dark age. Lord, we, we need that perspective. Give us that perspective, especially in light of a coming election season. 
What does it mean to be the people of God in a nation that has turned from God? The scriptures have the answer. Help us to, to be guided by them every step of the way. That we would stand for truth and we would do what is right, but that we are never a reproach to our neighbor or to the world. That we would bear the name of Christ rightly. Jesus, make us to be like yourself and be glorified through us and bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.